When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Today's episode of Eco Chic is brought to you by Sawyer. Sawyer's goal is, and always has been, to improve your outdoor experience while also making a difference in people's lives. I'm personally a huge hiker, a big outdoor advocate. Sawyer makes products that seriously elevate that outdoor experience. Insect repellents for your clothes and gear, sunscreen that's formulated to actually stay put, and first aid products specific for your ultra-lightweight backpacking and camping. The insect repellent is especially cool because it doesn't stink like a lot of other insect repellents, and there's no worse feeling after a day outside than being sticky and smelly from your bug spray. Sawyer also has water filtration systems, which help support their international water relief programs. They're on a mission to make sure every single person on the planet has access to clean, healthy water. For more information on Sawyer or where to buy their products, check out their buy page on Sawyer.com, which features online retailers and a local retailer locator. You can use the code ECPOD25, which is good for 25% off Sawyer products at SawyerSafeTravel.com. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic, day two of Earth Week. I'm feeling good. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're doing as well as you can during these circumstances. And I'm excited to have you here today. Thanks for hanging out. We've got a Chic Chats episode today. If you're new to the pod, these are listener call-ins to speak on one particular common interest topic. We share these episodes once every six to eight weeks, and there's been some other awesome topics like sustainability-focused careers, environmentalism abroad, why sustainability is often associated with feminism. That one was really juicy. If you like this style of episode, there's a lot for you to binge. Today, we're talking about research. We're speaking to four women about the academic topics they're currently studying. On a personal note, I'm a really big advocate for research experiences, especially if you are young, early in your academic career, you're figuring out what you like, what you don't like, when it comes to topics within your field. So I really do like to advocate for undergraduate research. You could volunteer if you're in high school and if the opportunity arose. If you're interested in research, if you're interested in learning more about specific topics than what you're getting out of your formal classroom setting, I highly encourage you look into opportunities nearby to get involved. During this period of social isolation, we're not starting brand new novel projects, 
But looking forward, it is a great learning opportunity, even if you don't necessarily want to be a scientist when you grow up. I shared an episode about the value of experiential learning, more outdoorsy research experiences outside of the classroom that I will link in the show notes. It was episode 72. If you're indoors, however, I want to encourage you to seek out learning opportunities wherever you can. Especially during Earth Week right now, there's a lot of virtual seminars going on, Zoom panel discussions, there's a lot of resources online. And beyond Earth Week, beyond environmentally focused conversations, a lot's going on online in your particular field. Maybe it just takes a little bit of digging. Check out maybe your LinkedIn newsfeed. That's where I'm seeing a lot of panels being advertised. There's a lot of opportunities for you to continue your learning outside of the formal classroom setting. Listen to a podcast. Go into the podcast search bar and type in some keywords of topics you've been wanting to learn more about. This is a great time to really expand your mind and figure out what's going on in your field and also learn a little bit more about where you want to focus your learning efforts moving forward. And I want to emphasize that this isn't just if you're like currently in school, in university. This really does apply to everyone. There's always an opportunity to continue learning, continue your education and encourage more thought in your field. I also think this is an important episode that I was really excited about putting together because a lot of scientists and a lot of academics are being a little displaced right now, absolutely with good reason. And we'll talk a little bit about how resources are being reallocated right now to develop a vaccine. And my heart also really goes out to students right now. If you are in college, a semester is a long time to kind of miss out on, quote unquote, And everyone is kind of settling into this new learning online situation that we're being put in. And my heart really goes out to you. I'm I'm sorry it happened, but I'm glad that we're all socially distancing. Regardless, I'm looking forward to hearing more about research that's kind of been put on hold and is changing right now with the times. Like I mentioned earlier, we're speaking with four people today. Claire, a PhD student studying cancer biology, Charlotte, a PhD student who's working on hydrology and learning about flooding events. Leah, an undergraduate environmental engineer working on wind farms and stormwater management. And Erica, an undergraduate in microbiology. She does some chemistry as well, and she studies the symbiosis between coral and algae. I usually speak on these episodes with people I've never spoken to before. It's intended to be a listener-focused episode inviting you to be on the show. But I do want to admit that I know Claire and Charlotte very well. Claire is one of my closest friends from undergrad, and Charlotte is a very good friend of mine from graduate school. While we're friends, though, we don't typically talk about each other's research projects, so all of the conversations today were very new information for me. I ask everyone about their projects and try to better understand why their research is valuable to our broader understanding of everyone's respective fields, and then we discuss how their projects are being impacted by the coronavirus. I mentioned Claire does more medically focused work, so hers is arguably the most impacted right now, so we'll listen to that one first. I think Charlotte's discussion of flooding gives a really good basis for better understanding the value of Leia's research in stormwater management and natural resource engineering. And then lastly, Erica and I talk about her research and also the value of research experiences and some thoughts for anyone interested in getting involved with their first research experiences all around a really awesome group of people and an incredible insight on what scientists are actually working on right now. I want to preface also, in case anyone is new around here, that I'm not an expert on any of these research topics presented today. Scientists will always be the world's experts on their respective topics because what's studied in labs is fresh and novel, and the goal of academia is to add new insight to the body of knowledge that already exists. 
My undergrad research focused on animal biology and ecology, natural resources, and my master's is in climate science and solutions, so more holistic understanding of climate change and planning for resiliency efforts. So it was really cool for me to hear firsthand what's going on in all of these respective fields and what we really need to be looking for moving forward. These are my favorite style of episodes because I always like to say that podcasts are inherently very intimate. You're listening to my voice and getting to know my personality and my mannerisms. And I think it's important to emphasize that there are a lot of other people in this community experiencing similar things that you are. And very important to realize that there are other experiences that can add to your understanding of your journey, quote unquote, when it comes to environmentalism, when it comes to being an active participant in the sustainability movement. So these are my favorite kind of episodes. And I like to think of this as just as much your show as it is mine. I like to think of all of us really contributing. So if you like this style of episode, rate and review the pod on Apple Podcasts, subscribe. It really helps out the show. Follow along on Instagram and Facebook, Eco Chic Podcast. Instagram is also typically where I recruit people for these call-in episodes. It's just the easiest for me to manage. So if you'd like to be featured on an upcoming Chic Chats call-in episode, you can follow us along there where I'll be announcing the next call-in topic. We have a site for our sustainability supplies, totallyecochic.com, if you are looking for some sustainability supplies. And that's also where you can sign up for our newsletter. All of those links, plus my email address, if you'd like to get in touch, are always in the show notes. Let's get into it. We're talking academia, research, science in the age of social distancing, and what you're working on in the lab. Claire, before we get started, let's let everyone know your age and where you're calling in from. I am 25, and I'm calling in from North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina. (laughs) Great. So let's talk about your research. What is it that you're studying in graduate school right now? Yeah, so I am getting a PhD. I'm in my first year right now on the West Coast. I am in the pharmacology department, which is pretty much drug development, but across all different diseases. What I really focus on is cancer therapeutics. So I work on a specific type of cancer therapeutic called a immunotherapy. And unfortunately, my research has been paused as of now, but just been getting into it in the past six months. And it's been really exciting so far. Why is what you do so important to developing pharmaceutical techniques around cancer? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So I am not going to ever treat a cancer patient. I won't work with patients face-to-face. That's what an MD does. What I do is kind of before that, like before you see a medicine in a clinic. So we do what's called preclinical research. And this is often done in animal models and cell culture models. But it's really important to validate these new approaches to cancer therapy before you um, see them in a clinical setting, before you give them to a patient. Yeah, I think it's important that you're talking about how important and valuable it is to test things in the clinic, especially with all of this conversation going on right now about vaccines and how desperately we need a COVID vaccine. And I would, first of all, love to hear about how coronavirus has impacted your research and why you are or are not able to continue what it is that you do. Yeah, totally. So as I mentioned, I'm in North Carolina right now, but My university is actually on the West Coast, so I'm clearly not 
doing cancer research at the moment, but this has been what I guess you'd call sort of a designation of resources. The university that I am at, they've really pushed to focus solely on their virology research at the moment. And I think this is really a pattern that I've seen across the board at all these major universities, Harvard and Johns Hopkins and UNC Chapel Hill here in North Carolina. They've all focused a lot of their efforts and put their best scientists to virus research to find treatments and um, an effective vaccine. My research involving developing these cancer therapies, it actually uses the same resources as a virology lab would. So we've definitely just tried to push everything in all manpower toward this virus research in the hopes of developing something really quickly and hopefully curing coronavirus. Yeah, I think it's really cool probably for a lot of people to realize that equipment also needs to be rationed out right now. We're hearing a lot about masks and PPE that aren't getting to healthcare Mm -hmm. workers, but a lot of people probably don't realize that in order to also solve this problem and work on a vaccine, you also need to think about all of the equipment, the machines, and just even the day-to-day, like the gloves in these research labs, the little test tubes, the pipettes, like everything has to be reallocated to focusing on one specific topic. And I also think it's cool to think that every major science community in the world is also focusing on one specific thing right now. Like all of our equipment is being focused on one thing and all of our brain power is really being focused on one thing. So I would love to hear a little bit about your perspective on like the science community coming around coronavirus and finding a coronavirus vaccine. Yeah, of course. And I think you could add to this too, but I think it's really remarkable how quickly scientists have come together and been willing to work both on the academic side, so in these big universities, and in the industry side, so with these pharmaceutical and biotech companies that are um, really established. I was just kind of looking through coronavirus research that had been published. And I mean, the amount of new information that we've found in the past three or four months about this virus is really, really remarkable. I mean, it's at an exponential pace and it really gives me a lot of hope for what's to come in the next few months. I think healthcare workers are doing an amazing job on their part and they deserve worlds of recognition to be on the front lines of taking care of these patients. And on the back end of that will be the scientists who come through in the next few months and hopefully um, validate a few treatments and further down the line, a few vaccines. So it's been really exciting to just kind of take a back seat and see this happen. Yeah, I think that's really cool. It's also really cool to think that all of these scientists, again, they're coming up with all of this research at such a fast pace compared to other niche topics, you know, historically speaking. (laughs) It's crazy because it'll take 10 to 15 years to make a regular vaccine to go through preclinicals and everything to really get it ready for the human population. Everything is happening so quickly. The research is happening so quickly. And It also makes me think about the research that is being presented in the news. So I'd love to hear like your take on people consuming scientific information that's being published on this. Like, is there this disconnect between the public and scientists if you're seeing that at all? And what can we really do moving forward? 
So I kind of see parallels between climate education and just general biomedical education. Um, there are a few deniers out there and there's a little bit of fake science in the news that it's sometimes hard to circumvent. So I think kind of getting to the, the last question you had asked, how do we kind of start to reverse this is I mean, just kind of educating people on where your best sources of information really come from. I think it's critical to recognize that this research is being peer-reviewed, so it's being reviewed and evaluated by the entire scientific community. And if something doesn't look right, that is flagged and um, it doesn't necessarily get published onto a scientific database. I think the idea of peer review is really important because people outside of the scientific community don't always initially think of peer-reviewed journals or even just peer-reviewed publications, thinking of them as, you know, backed by the entire scientific community. And if something is published and then it turns out that other scientists can't replicate it or they don't find the same results, that gets pulled and that gets flagged and that person's credibility is really lost. So thinking about the entire scientific community, like backing up certain claims, whether it is with our current pandemic or climate science or whatever it may be, there are hundreds of thousands of people backing this. And thinking about those few deniers out there, they're often the loudest voices, which I think gets- say that. (laughs) Yeah, it gets lost. Yeah, it's definitely a little unfortunate and and it can be kind of frustrating to watch people kind of believe stuff that just really isn't necessarily backed up by science. I mean, we've seen um, even our own president kind of tout certain combinations of medication that you could ask any doctor and they'd say, yeah, we we can do that, but it's just, it hasn't been proven in these clinical trials that are just so, so important to human safety and the efficacy of treating the virus. So yeah, it's just things like that. But I think this is also an exciting time for people to kind of delve in a little bit and see what the process is like. Everybody now knows the incredible amount of work it takes to develop a vaccine and how quickly we've been able to cut that down and meet these milestones to really help develop new therapy. It's incredible. Yeah, definitely. And then I guess closing off, my last question for you is in regards to your own research, how are things moving forward? Because you can't necessarily say like, okay, by August, I'll be back in the lab working on my projects. Moving forward, like what does research look like for you? Yeah, definitely. That's kind of a question that myself and the faculty members in my department have been really pondering and what we're going to continue to focus on moving forward. So as of right now, just because um, my work is kind of tangential to the clinic, it is very close to going into clinical trials, we are allowed to work on certain aspects. So despite what you might hear, it's all about virology and all this stuff cancer doesn't stop and all these different diseases don't stop. So there's a lot of research moving forward that is looking really promising to go into clinics. So that's been really exciting. I've been definitely sitting at a computer more rather than working at a bench, but I've just been reading and writing up a scientific paper. Um, So yeah, been pretty busy so far, but we're going to see what it looks like in the next few months. I mean, everybody's facing a lot of uncertainty right now. So that is mimicked in the scientific community. Charlotte, 
tell me before we get started your age and where you are calling in from. Um, I'm 27 and I'm calling in from Windsor, Connecticut right now, but normally based out of Boston, Mass. Awesome. Great. Well, I'm pumped today. I'm pumped today to finally hear about your current research. So I would love for you to just like set the scene. Tell me what it is that you're working on. So basically I study hydrology um, and extreme events like floods on the Mississippi River Basin. And I have more broad interests like um, river dynamics, like how river meanders change and um, how climate is associated with that. Um, but basically all about rivers and flooding, especially in the past. Why, so maybe just educate me a little bit. Why would you want to study rivers in relation to like their historical data? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a fair question because we have to answer that stuff a lot for grant proposals and things. Um, but basically we don't have a very good history of uh, flood in the past, floods in the past, right? So we have these um, measurements basically taken since sometimes the 1800s, mostly the 1900s, like around the big gauges on the Mississippi, like St. Louis and, and um, places like that. But we don't, and we have some written records before that from like some settlers and explorers of floods maybe and how big they were in the past. But before that, we don't have a very good sense of how flood has, floods have changed over time. So it's really important to figure out um, our baseline when we're thinking about the future. And especially now with climate change, to try to figure out how things are going to change um, as climate changes, it's important to understand how they were changing in the past when climate was changing. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think about flooding a lot, actually, because where I live now, we have a lot of flooding. And I think floods are a natural disaster, essentially. And would you call, you call floods a natural disaster? Yes, yeah, yeah. or hazard. Yeah, I think floods, yeah, a, a hazard that people don't always associate with, like, really extreme climate changes. They think of hurricanes or fires, and floods are also just incredibly damaging, not only to homes and, like, to individual people, but thinking about it from an ecological perspective, I have to imagine that that really affects, like, just the ground and the makeup of habitats for a lot of animals and things like that. Does that yeah. make Is that true? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, and I study more inland flooding, but especially with coastal flooding, like it can totally change an ecosystem. Like just think about um, some of the barrier islands all up and down the East Coast. Like really in the past, uh, we used to have these great huge marsh systems that were constantly changing depending on um, floods, a lot of times induced by hurricanes, but these marshes were like really important parts of the ecosystem and changing. Huh. For some reason, I wouldn't, this is probably like a really ignorant thing to say, but I just don't know that much about floods. But for some reason, I didn't immediately think of floods in the same capacity that I usually think of sea level rise when you talk about barrier islands. But it makes total sense to be thinking that all of these things are really playing into each other. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and um, I think it's interesting how people people have to really distinguish coastal flooding versus flooding in other places because yeah, it's there's so it's so intertied with other hazards that are happening, I think. Huh. 
Okay. I guess my last, I would love, or I guess not even my last question. I don't know if this is going to be my last question, but I would love to like set the scene also as to like what this looks like when you're doing your research. Are you going out and like getting ground samples, really deep cores to figure out if there's been moisture in certain places? What does it look like to study floods historically beyond looking at records? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, um, I'm more uh, on the geology side of this, so you can be in a lot of different realms when you study this kind of stuff. Like you can be an atmospheric scientist, you can be um, an ecologist, all kinds of things, but I'm more on the geology side. And um, what we do in our lab group specifically is we take sediment cores um, out of oxbow lakes. So when you have a meandering river like the Mississippi River or the Missouri, over time, the curve, the curviness of the river changes and you get these cutoffs and they're called oxbow lakes. So if anyone's from the Midwest, they're probably really familiar with these because they're, um, a lot of times they're state parks and things. But uh, basically when you get big floods on the Mississippi River, uh, it actually overtops the barrier. And so um, the, the flood drops a lot of coarse sediment into the lake that's sitting right on the outside of the, of the river. And so we go and we take sediment cores, so like a tube of mud from the bottom of these lakes, and we look for these flood deposits. So normally in a lake, you're just getting uh, lots of clays settling to the bottom, just like really muddy kind of um, swampy material. But in a flood, you get this big coarse like sand and gravel sometimes pushed in from the river. And so we look for these alternating layers of sand and clay to figure out like how many floods were in the past and possibly even how big they were in the past. Got it. That was a really, really good visual of what a sediment core looks like. Because when I think of sediment cores, or at least when I was first learning about sediment cores and how you can take different kinds of cores, like ice cores, like barb is my favorite. But when you're thinking about cores, I think it's helpful for people to also think of them as just like the lake version of counting tree rings. Is that a pretty reasonable comparison? Yeah, a lot of times you can't think about it like that. So you get these layers that are deposited every year. So sometimes they're harder to see and sometimes they're easier to see. So these lakes in the Midwest, it's, they're a little harder to see because they tend to look pretty similar in color. But it definitely is like a tree ring in a sense because you're getting this some amount of material that's settling to the bottom of the lake every year. So over time it's building up higher and higher and higher and you can go and take a little tube and capture it and look through the layers. So it's the same thing where the, you know, the bottom of it is going to be the oldest and the top is going to be the youngest. Got it. Awesome. Um, I guess my, like my true final question for you is given the state of the world right now, given that you can't be going out and getting your sediment cores, I would love to hear a little bit about like what your research looks like right now in the in the state of isolation during these quarantines? <laughs> That's a good question. That's a good word. Um, yeah, so luckily I have had a few cores already that I got to analyze. So I have some data of like um, basically the grain size distribution of an entire core. So I have some data that I can look at already, which shows me how this grain size has changed over time. And so I can look for these floods. So I'm spending a lot of time plotting this up, um, basically like looking at the, you know, floods in the past. Um, And then another big part of my work is uh, basically figuring out the age of all the mud. And it's, 
it doesn't seem like it'd be that big of a deal, but it actually is kind of hard to figure out the age. So um, I've been spending a lot of time making age models of the mud, like trying to figure out when these floods exactly happened in the core. Um, so I spend a lot of time in R, the computer program. Um, and I've been reading a lot of papers too recently about um, just different things I wanna learn about, like atmospheric dynamics of floods and how those are changing and have changed. Um, and yeah, I have a couple classes that I've been, have to keep attendance with, so. Fabulous. Well, sounds like a good position that you're in, honestly. It sounds like a really good way to spend your time. It's nice that you already have your data and you're still chugging along. Yeah. Yeah, Hi. I'm definitely grateful for that because I have some, but some people that I work with, because I actually work at a marine science center, and a lot of them have like ongoing projects with oysters or mussels or and stuff like that. And I'm really glad that I don't have to take care of like live animals during this or like wait for a very long experiment to finish. Oh yeah. I didn't even think about people who are doing live animal research. This is a really hard time to be doing that. Yes. Yeah, it is. There's a there's a girl outside my lab who is um growing like uh it's it's algae, but it grows like calcium carbonate, like it has a skeleton. Hmm. And she had an experiment she had just started when all of this happened. So I don't know what's happening with that. I think she's still going in every day because you have to feed it. Yikes. Yeah. Wow. Well, justice for the scientists who are continuing to like actively tend to their experiments. For some reason, it didn't even occur to me that there were people who were still actively working, which sounds, I mean, that sounds literally terrible to say, but I just, when you think of, like, people who are continuing to work, people who can't work from home, my assumption is always, like, frontline workers, people who are in hospitals, people who are dealing with the watershed, and it just didn't even occur to me that there's plenty of scientists who also have to continue tending to their research at this point. Yeah, it's true, and I think I think a lot of people have shut down their labs and, like, really found out a way to sort of end things, but I think, like, there are definitely some long-term experiments that are, it's hard to yeah. You have to keep monitoring. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, Shar, thanks so much for joining me. Is there anything that we didn't get to talk about that you think is helpful to better understand your research? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think just, uh, well, I guess something that also helps my research that is coming, that's getting better and better is climate models. Ooh. And um, we have uh, I've just been thinking about this because I've been playing around with it lately too, is we we're getting a lot better like reanalysis data, which is basically like using climate models and projecting things into the past actually to see how we, we think things changed in the past using climate models. So that's a really helpful thing that's been happening lately is a lot of more people have been spending time on that in relationship to rivers. So like basically how discharge in rivers has changed over the over time. So anyway, I'm grateful for the like atmospheric modeling community in their efforts uh, for reanalysis data. I love that. Leah, before we get started, tell me your age and where you're calling in from. I'm 21 and I'm calling from Chicago. Awesome. So before we start talking about your research, I would first love to talk about environmental engineering. Let me know what that is and what that looks like for you. Yeah, so I'm studying environmental engineering at Michigan Tech, 
And it's kind of just a field focused on uh, water resources engineering. It can mean anything from like construction engineering and like focusing on like pollutants and where those are going and how to prevent it or like spills and stuff like that. And it can also have to do with stormwater management, other important factors like that. So there's a wide range of stuff and it's pretty general. It can also have to do with like air quality and a lot of chemical and biological resources as well. So it's very applicable to many different fields and a really important field for the future. Basically just taking a natural resources type focus and solutions, like how do we manage these resources? How do we really make them work for people? Yeah. So like a lot of engineering is focused on like physics versus um, materials, physics, strength of materials. But environmental engineering, they focus a lot more on the chemical and biological processes within a lot of those manufacturing models, which is really interesting to me. So like I'm very keen on stormwater management personally. Cool. I think that's really important, honestly. And I think that a lot of people don't necessarily think of stormwater flooding as a natural hazard. Actually, someone else on this episode is doing research on flooding, which I think this will be like a cool one to pair up. But I would love to start talking about your research a little bit. Tell me what it is that you're studying. So I had an internship last summer in which I was actually in Iowa for um, working on a wind farm which was super interesting. So I was putting in the temporary roads as a field engineer. So we were kind of managing the construction process. Um, It was basically in the middle of nowhere. I was on a brand new project. So it was kind of interesting. We started out with like 10 people there, just the engineers for the civil team. And we ended up with 200 construction workers. And we went from site to site. There were 200 different sites. So we go around and make sure everything was prepped and all the organization was there. And we were spreading the right information from our group to like the wind group. So it was a really cool process, and I got to talk to a lot of really interesting people. Are you still working on wind research? Yeah, so next summer I'm supposed to be in Wyoming working on one of the largest wind farms in America and possibly the world after this project, which is a really cool thing. It's been going for years, and it's a huge project, which is really cool. So I'm actually going to be working as an environmental intern for this company next year, which means I'm basically worried about the stormwater runoff on the project sites. And that's a huge issue in Wyoming because there are a lot of hills. So it's kind of taking a look at the layout of the land and being like, okay, where is this water possibly going to be able to run off to and how do we prevent it? So it's using a lot of like straw waddles and items like that to make sure we can prevent as much pollutants getting to natural resources as possible. Got it. Got it. And these are both projects where you're managing and really looking at the land where you have wind turbines. Is that correct? Am I imagining this correctly? So we get to a site and there's nothing there. In Iowa, it was completely flat, but there's a lot underneath the soil we have to worry about. There's a lot of testing that has to be done on the soil itself to make sure we can put a turbine there or we can put a crane walking through this entire field, or there's like, if there's drain pipes underneath it, or moving water from one end of the field to the other without creating a pond in the middle of the field, then that's an important thing to know as well. So it's a lot of surveying, and then taking that information and trying to figure out where we can actually place the turbines at the end of that surveying period. Got it. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. You have to really make sure that the land is even Mm -hmm. useful for where you want to put these wind turbines. And I guess looking forward, tell me a little bit about what you can do with this skill set that you're acquiring of land surveys and natural resource management. Like, what do you want to do with this long term? Which is kind of a heavy question, so I'm sorry to like dump that on you. (laughs) No worries. It's a good question. So I really am focusing my future around 
climate change. That's where my passion lies and trying to prevent a lot of the effects that we feel, specifically like construction in urban areas. It's a really important thing because it seems like it can really easily be forgotten. So like specifically water, we're getting heavier storms, especially in the Midwest. And as that happens, there's more water running through the entire fields or through urban settings with less saturation into the soil. So that's a huge problem with flooding and just road structures in general, piping, culverts, stuff like that. And then trying to prevent failure in infrastructure is really important. So that's kind of what I like to see in the construction field. And I love the hands-on mentality. So it's like if there's a time where you're not doing anything in the trailers, you're not putting in data or anything, we would just go drive around and take a look. I got to learn a lot about the importance of preventing runoff by just driving around and checking out a lot of these different sites when maybe there wasn't a whole lot going on that day. Yeah, that's really cool. I like that you mentioned construction also because I feel like construction is an industry that doesn't get enough play when it comes to the climate change conversation, when it comes to resiliency efforts, when it comes to making sure that we're prepared to deal with the impacts of a changing landscape. So I'm glad that you mentioned construction. Yeah, I think it's a really important thing to talk about just because like it might sound evil, but it has to get done. So question lies, like what is the best way we can do this without harming the environment, but putting up something that should help us in the long term, like wind turbines. How can we manage this in a really sustainable way? The the way I think of it at least. Yeah, absolutely. Like the path of least resistance. We need to change our infrastructure. We need to basically revolutionize it and make it economical and also just very durable. We need to make sure that whatever we put up lasts a long time. So we need this construction to get done. It's a matter of how we can do it and what is the best way. And obviously there's new technology come around every single day that we're trying to apply, but maybe it's not economical at that point. So it's like, what can we do with our power at that point and our resources? to make this as sustainable as possible. Erica, I'm pumped to talk to you today, finally. I'm like really excited. <laughs> I'm really excited. I'm really excited to have you. Before we start talking, let me know your age and where you're calling in from. Yeah, of course. So my name is Erica. I'm 20 years old and I go to school at the University of California in Riverside. So I am calling in from California. Tell me a little bit about your research. What is it that you study? I help out. I'm a grad student. His project is about coral symbiosis. Um, Symbiosis between coral and algae. Just a little background of what that is. So basically algae live on coral and the algae is actually what gives coral their color. So like different colored algae make the coral different color. But when the algae gets stressed, and that could be to like pollution in the ocean or global warming, like intense heat can stress them out. They are basically bleached. So they are discolored and then they fall off the coral, which leads to coral bleaching. So our research, we're trying to figure out what genes are responsible for the symbiosis and like what genes are making them stressed and like making them fall off and leading to coral bleaching. I'm really glad that you explained that because I think coral bleaching is something that we're seeing more and more news stories about. And I don't think that it's something that's explained too thoroughly, just the idea that there's algae on coral and this is all due to stress. So I would also love Mm -hmm. to talk to you just about coral bleaching and a little bit more about like why that happens, why it's important to study the genes that are associated with the symbiotic relationship between algae and coral. 
So in the end, this will help engineers kind of decide what chemicals to use. Like, for example, my PI, when he was talking to me about this, he was like, well, once we know these genes, like we can test certain chemicals on them and see if it affects the algae or if it doesn't. And the ones that do affect it, we know to not use those chemicals when engineers are making products to clean up oil spills. So think about like the Gulf of Mexico and like the aftermath of the Gulf of Mexico and what happened to the coral after that. Got it. Got it. And what does your lab setup look like? Like how do you study these corals in California? Okay. So that's the interesting part. So coral and sea anemone are actually from the same family. So we don't have coral in the lab. We play with sea anemone which is like the best part about my research because as a volunteer, I basically just make sure that they're healthy. I feed them, I clean their tanks and, you know, things like that. And so we use mutant screens. So basically my grad student, he'll go through the algae, he'll make mutant algae, and then he introduces them to sea anemones. So it's really important that the sea anemone are healthy. So when the algae are introduced to them, they can, you know, uptake that and then we can observe the effects. Oh, that's really cool. That sounds like a really fun setup for you. It sounds like a really beautiful, like, aesthetic lab, too, just full of sea anemones. <laughs> yeah, so we start out with just regular, like, wild-type sea anemone. They're, like, a brownish color, you know, with algae on it. And then eventually, over time, they are bleached, basically, so they, they become, like, white sea anemone. They're, that's when they're, like, the prettiest. Like, the brown ones aren't that pretty. The bleached white ones, we call them the apo ones. Those are really pretty. Got it. Got it. Are you looking into doing marine biology long term? Because you're an undergrad. You said you were in your senior year. Like, where do you go from here? I'm not. I really do like marine biology, but I just have other dreams. So I plan to apply to medical school. But this was just like a good way for me to get into like hands on research about, you know, marine biology and like sustainability efforts too. So that's one of the reasons why I picked this research lab. I just really liked the mission and that wasn't like looking at organic chemistry molecules all day. I don't think I could ever be in an OCHEM lab or anything of that sort. So I really liked this lab and I'm so happy of my experience with it. That's awesome. I think that's really a great point to give people just that this isn't necessarily your dream to study algae or coral for the rest of your life. And that's totally fine. It's like really good to have hands-on research and things that aren't necessarily your passions, but they're transferable skills. Because I feel like a lot of the time, like when you're looking for that first research experience, you want it to be an incredible, like really crafting long-term lifelong passion. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Like you can still have fun and really enjoy it and learn a lot. Yeah. I think that like what you can take away from what you're doing with the research is more important than like, say you want to make a drug to cure cancer. Like it's really nice to learn different skills that'll make you better as like a student or as like, you know, just a professional. And I've learned a lot of that through this research and it's okay that I'm not curing any diseases here. (laughs) Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I actually, I studied sea turtles in college, which is kind of a random fact. I don't think I've ever shared that before actually, but I studied sea turtles for a long time in college. I knew that I liked turtles on a personal level, But I was very thankfully like also acquiring other skills where I didn't necessarily want to dedicate my lifetime of research to sea turtles. You know, not that it's not important. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fine that you dedicated your time in college to do it because you enjoyed it. And yeah, at the end of the day, it's about what you enjoy. And it's about also just getting your foot in the door when it comes to research experiences. Like your first few experiences aren't going to be, again, like your dream job or your number one passion. 
and you're still developing skills to eventually get to where you want to be. So I think that's awesome. And being in a research lab is so much different than being in your general chemistry labs, your general bio labs. It's so different, such a different experience. And so it's a really good experience to see what research is really like if you were to pursue that like as a career. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people don't always realize that a lot of careers require some research experience or like some sort of research exposure because even if it's not you're going into like let's say you're going into academia like if you want to go get a master's or PhD or academic degree later on yeah you're going to be doing a lot of research but also if you're going to professional school like medical school but also if you're going to law school let's think about that like you're reading and writing every day and you have to synthesize a lot of information and those are skills that you will have to use in a research setting it's really about learning how to read and write and analyze information really, really well. Yeah, and being sure that you're very consistent and really particular with all the notes that you're taking down, like mm-hmm. everything every day. I have like a lab notebook and my PI and my grad student are really great about like keeping all that stuff organized. Yeah. Just the idea that research doesn't have to be this big, amazing find, but just having that experience will do more wonders than you think. And I'm happy that my research is something I'm interested in. So don't just take any research because you think it'll look good on a resume. Do it because you're excited to do it. And make sure you understand it too, I would say. Oh yeah, that's a good point. I know a lot in like my academic labs, I would do things just by the procedure and not really know what I'm doing and Mm -hmm. do it to do it. But I'm really happy that in this research lab, I was able to understand why we're doing it what exactly we're doing, and what good it'll do for the world. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Eco Chic. Don't forget we have a new episode coming out every single day this week. There was one fresh yesterday. If you're interested in going back and listening to that, don't forget to follow along, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.